2 Samuel 24, the last chapter of 2 Samuel. We're not going to finish 2 Samuel today. We're going to bite this off in two parts. Uh, So we will finish 2 Samuel next week, and I'll be able to give you a grand total, but it's been well over two years that we've been going through 1 and 2 Samuel, um, and it's been, I've enjoyed it tremendously, so I hope you have. 2 Samuel 24, and as we get into it today, um, the focus of 2 Samuel chapter 24 is really the sins of pride and self-sufficiency and God's judgment upon David uh, and the people of Israel and Judah for those sins. Um, And so we're going to look at that. And everyone deals with, with pride on some level, don't they? We all deal with pride on various levels. The story is told of a, of a pastor, and he was on his way home from church. He had preached the message, and he was feeling particularly good about the message and, and all. He's driving home with his wife, and, and he wonders you know, to, to himself, but he says it out loud and says it for the benefit of his wife. He says, yeah, I wonder how many truly great preachers there are in this world. And his wife, knowing him, looked at him. She's like, one less than you think there is. (laughs) And Brenda, that really hurt when you said that to me. (laughs) (laughs) C.S. Lewis said this about pride. He says, there's no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves than pride. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Now, the Latin word for pride is superbia, not suburbia, but superbia, and it means aspiring to be on top, you know? You, me, this is, that's the nature of pride. And uh, the truth is only God is on top. And the truth is, is that the key to peace with God and the key to peace with others is a daily dependence on God. When we get this issue of God is on top and I am submissive and subservient to him. And, and so when we get that, that's the key to having peace with God, to having peace with God's people and the people that we interact with. And that's what we're gonna deal with today, that David kind of loses sight uh, of that. Second Samuel 24, beginning in verse one, we read again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel and he moved David against them uh, to say, go number Israel and Judah. Now, it starts off here saying, again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And this saying, again, infers that there was a previous time that his anger was aroused, and certainly there was. This is a reference to 2 Samuel 21, which was not too many weeks ago when we went through that. And if you'll recall, that um, God brought a three-year famine upon the land and the nation of Israel. And he did so because he was angry with them. Uh, so when this says that, that, again, the anger of the Lord is, is, is burning against them, that's where it's coming from. This, again, is, yeah, the last time was uh, three years of famine, and the reason for that occasion was because Saul uh, had sinned against the Gibeonites, 
Uh, Joshua, uh, when, when he was there and, you know, ruling and leading there, the nation of Israel, uh, he had entered into a covenantal agreement, into a, a peace treaty of sorts with the Gibeonites. And Saul disregarded the covenant that they had made, and he began to mistreat the Gibeonites. And so God saw this, did not like it, uh, wanted their yes to be yes, and their no to be no, wanted them to be people that kept their word. And so God uh, brought famine to the land, and the purpose for the famine at that time was to bring Israel to a place of repentance. And here now we read again that the Lord is displeased with Israel. Now why is he displeased with them? And the truth is we really don't know. We can only speculate. Um, We're not given the details. Was it because they had sided with Absalom in the rebellion? Maybe. There are some commentators that talk about this chapter and the accounts that happen here um, and kind of a spoiler alert to this story that we're actually going to get more into next week. 70,000 people are ultimately going to die because of this sinful thing that God leads David to do and that the, that the people respond to. And, and so there are those that say, well, the 70,000 were the people that sided with Absalom when he rebelled and this is God, you know, being angry with them for that and dealing with that. We don't know. Was it because they'd stop gathering to honor God at the feasts? Again, we don't know. Um, you know, the, the, the tabernacle's still in Gibeah. They'd moved the ark to Jerusalem, but the tabernacle's still in Gibeah. And it, was God mad about that, that they should have brought the place of worship to be where the ark was and worshiping in that way? Maybe. Uh, you know, had they stopped circumcising their children and he had commanded or stopped keeping the Sabbath or stopped giving the land a Sabbath year's rest as all of these things God had commanded that we know that at one time or another Israel disregarded and stopped doing. So the, again, the, the issue is we don't know what it was, but whatever the sin was, God's anger was aroused against them and he was going to judge them for it. Now, simultaneously, and this is key to this entire chapter, we need to understand that something sinful is also cooking in David's heart. David's got this, this, this sin that's just lurking there, just crouching at the door, something that, that is building up, raising up, this sin of pride and self-sufficiency is raising its ugly head. And so we read that he moved David against Israel to say, go and number Israel and Judah. Now, numbering the people was not necessarily on the face of it sin. Uh, God had made provisions in Genesis cha- or in Exodus chapter thirty for how the people were to be numbered, um, and basically the idea there is that the people were to be numbered for the express purpose of of obtaining half a shekel from each person for the express purpose of paying the bills for the sanctuary of God to perpetuate the worship of God and the mission that God wanted to to do there. And so this was the idea of how a national census was to be taken, to fund the work of God. And this is God's design. God's design uh, is, is that we should worship God with our money. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We here at the church for so many years, um, we, we wouldn't pass the bag. We, we would instead just stick the, the giving boxes at the back by the exit, and we really de-emphasized giving. And the reason that I did that was because really wanted to be sensitive to people, not to send the message like, hey, we're just interested in you and your wallet. 
you know, and just trying to get into that. I was, I was raised in the Catholic Church and they used to have the bag on the end of a pole, you know, and they'd go down and it'd be like, you know, that kind of thing. Not, not really. But, but at any rate, that's the way it felt. So we de-emphasized it. We wanted, didn't want people to feel like we're just after their wallets. And then the Lord convicted me of that because the issue is, is that we, te- we don't fail to teach about anything else that the Bible has to say. And the Bible has a lot to say about giving and the attitude with which we give. And so we changed it here. We passed the basket. We do so in the middle of our worship service because it's an act of worship to God. So we want it to be part of our worship. And the truth is our whole life is an act of worship to God. How we live, how we, you know, treat our children, how we treat our spouse, how we, how we minister to other people, how we conduct ourselves, uh, our singing during the, the service of, of worshiping the Lord in song, worshiping the Lord in our giving, um, worshiping the Lord in the attentiveness to his word and the, yield, the, the yielded life of obedience is the, great, the greatest act of worship that we can give. And so all of this is important And so had David here conducted a national census for the express purpose of collecting this shekel for the, for the, for the furtherance of God's work, had that been his motive, that would have been fine. There would have been nothing sinful about that. But that's not David's motive here. David's motive, what's going on, is he's not taking a census of all the people. No, what we're going to discover when we get to verse 9 is that he's taking a military census. He simply wants to know how strong are we? How, how, how many troops do we have? What is our capability to make war and to fight and to, and to, to be the captains of, of our own destiny? This is the heart of David when, when he says that he wants to do that. And it's an important distinction that he's taking the census for this purpose because it reveals the sin that is in David's heart and that sin, again, is pride and self-sufficiency. And so, very important. If you're taking notes, you could write down the first, the first point today, which is this, that David lost sight of God. David lost sight of God. See, David's about 70 years old at this time in his reign. We don't know exactly what's going on in his head or in his heart, but the attitude and the idea might well be, hey, I'm about ready to check out here. My son Solomon's gonna take over, and so I need to start taking inventory and get everything ready so that he knows what you know, his available forces are in case there's any trouble or whatever. But listen, this is not the legacy that David had to leave to his son Solomon. And it's not the legacy that David had to leave to us. That's not the legacy that God wanted him to lead. Listen, David's legacy was the legacy that we read about in the Psalms, where we see there David testifying of God's faithfulness. And David testifying of how God was faithful to provide and God was faithful to deliver and God was faithful to strengthen him and God was faithful to sustain he and the nation of Israel. And this is the legacy that David had to give. The legacy that David had to give was the legacy of, hey, I'm not perfect and when I blew it, when I fell into sin and committed adultery with Bathsheba and I fell into sin and I murdered her husband Uriah the Hittite, David's, David's legacy was to say, God was faithful even then. 
that, that he was faithful to, to, to give me victory and he was faithful to give me forgiveness and victory even over my own sin. That was the legacy that David had to give. And we need to understand that David was never vulnerable and he was never threatened. He wasn't vulnerable or threatened by the lion. He wasn't vulnerable or threatened by the bear. He wasn't vulnerable or threatened by Saul when Saul was coming against him or the Philistines when they were coming against him. No, he was victorious over the giant David or Goliath when he came against David. Not because he had a huge army, he was victorious because he had a huge faith in God. He said, you come against me, and, 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 or he said, rather, I come against you in the name of the living God. You've defied the armies of the living God, but I come against you in the name of God. He was victorious because of his faith. And that's the legacy that David has to leave to us, is a legacy of faith, not a legacy of my army is so many million people and I'm, I'm all that in and of myself. And this is the dangerous thing that is going on in David's heart. And listen, this legacy that David had, he passed it on. His legacy, the the legacy that he had to pass on and which he did pass on was this legacy of an incredible faith in an incredible God. And so last week when we're reading about David's mighty men and the incredible things that they did, one guy takes a stand by himself, kills 800 men. Another man takes a stand by himself, kills 300 men. Another man takes his stand in a field shoulder to shoulder with his king just to save a measly old barley field And he didn't have the victory against overwhelming troops because David had left him a legacy of, hey, you've got might and you've got power and you've got strength and you've got all of these resources. No, these men were able to themselves have incredible testimonies because they followed in the the legacy and example that David had to give and that was a legacy of faith and trusting in a supernatural God to do a supernatural work and sometimes despite us. In Hebrews chapter uh, 11, we see there that there's generation after generation after generation that all benefits from this legacy of faith. David among the, the generations that are listed. And, and, and it says, and tells us of David and many others who, the Bible says, through faith, Hebrews eleven thirty three and 34, subdued kingdoms worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. And listen, they didn't do that by taking matters into their own hands or by taking inventory of their own resources. Paul goes on to say, well, Paul, I think, is the author of Hebrews. That's debated. But he goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 12, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us because of our strength, because of our might. No, he goes on to say, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's funny, we, we had, years ago, we were having a banner made up of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. 
And the, the guy at the printer took it upon himself to change looking unto Jesus to looking into Jesus. That's the way he phrased it. He said, clearly, that it's got to be looking into Jesus. And what makes that funny is, is that, you know, that's the, the funny, sad in a way. It, it, it's the way a lot of people relate to God, you know? Oh, I'm looking into Jesus, you know? Yeah, I'm looking into him. Not looking unto him. We, we, we many times, you know, we have people that, they, they, Jesus for them is, is kind of a means to an end. He's kind of, you know, he's, he's a spare tire they keep in their trunk. They get a flat, they pull Jesus out, you know, because they're not looking in, unto Jesus. They're sort of looking into Jesus. He's a, hey, you handy guy to have around, Jesus. I could use a guy like you. I need a little strength, need a little patience, need a little more money here at the end of the month. God, you know, hook a brother up kind of thing. A lot of times we treat Jesus like a pinata and prayer's the stick and we just, you know, we're gonna beat Jesus enough with that prayer until all the goodies come falling out. This is not, this is not the way, you see, and the, and, the, and the issue and the bearing of what we're talking about here is that one approaches Jesus from a, from a, 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 a psychology or a mindset that says, you know what, I'm pretty self-sufficient, but you know what, every once in a while, Jesus, if you want to help me, that's cool. You could be a welcome addition to my kingdom. And Jesus says, I don't want to be a welcome addition to your kingdom very much. I think your kingdom stinks. I want you to be a welcome addition to my kingdom. So are you, are, are you, are you going to look into Jesus or are you going to look unto Jesus? This is the, the issue here. The psalmist said this, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name the Lord our God. And here's the ironic part about that. David wrote that. David wrote that. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And the fact is, is that David one time did, and he will again trust in the the name of the Lord our God. But right now, right here in this season of David's life, he's lost sight of God and he's not trusting in God anymore. He's trusting in his own strength, in his own ability, in his own might, in his own power. And he's saying, hey, let's go and number everybody and let's see what's going on here. Maybe tonight or today you've lost sight of God. Maybe today you're in a place to where, you know, you could be guilty of sort of this same self-sufficient, self-reliant sin, sinful attitude that maybe has crept into your life. Maybe at one time you, like David, will say, you know what, I'm just trusting in God. But maybe today you've gotten to the place where you subtly have, have, have shifted and maybe now today you're, you're trusting in yourself. Maybe going through an issue with your kids right now. And you've lost sight of God in the process and you've been doing everything that you can to kind of engineer things with your kids and maybe it's been a work of your flesh and maybe the Lord would say to you today, listen, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And maybe today that's something that the Lord would speak to you or maybe it's your finances. Maybe you're in a place to where it's, you know, oh gosh, I gotta figure this out. I gotta engineer some sort of solution. What am I gonna do to solve my problem? And and really in your heart of hearts, it's gotten away from saying, you know, God, how are you gonna provide? To saying, hey, me, how am I gonna provide? Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe you're in a situation to where it's like, you know, you're no longer in the place to where you say, Lord, you gotta change him. Lord, you gotta speak to him. Lord, you gotta minister to his heart. 
Maybe it's you, they're playing the role of the Holy Spirit and you're this, the one trying to do the work in your flesh and, and, and maybe that's it. Paul, speaking to the Galatians, he said this, he said, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? This situation in the book of Galatians, Paul's dealing with, he's planted this church, he's told everybody, look, salvation is by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ, you know, and, and, and so then, you know, plants this church, and these guys are trusting in the Lord, and then these group of guys come in, they sort of warm their way into the church, and they're like, yeah, Jesus is cool and all, but you know, if you want to be right with God, you need to be circumcised. And, and Paul is just like, you know, give, you guys, come on. You're saved by grace. And now what? You're gonna be perfected by the flesh, something you do that's gonna make you right with God? He says at one point, you know, having this debate about circumcision, he's like, you know, I wish that those that teach this would themselves be cut off. And, and, and it's kind of blunt language on Paul's terms. What he means is, hey, look, if cutting a little bit of flesh is gonna make you holy, then cut the whole thing off, man. That's kind of the attitude of what he's saying. And sometimes we can get that way. Maybe the issue that we've lost sight of is that our, faith, our walk with God, our pleasing God, is not a work of your flesh. It's a work of the Spirit of God. It's a work of faith. And sometimes we as Christians, we can forget who we were. We can forget what God did in our lives to save us and transform us. And now what happens is he begins to to clean us and do a work in us. And we begin to have this right relationship with God. And then all of a sudden we become the God squad. And I'm gonna say, God squad here, you're a sinner. You know, and we wanna just start just heaping on people. And maybe that's the issue. Maybe for us, the the issue of losing sight of God would be that now we're religious. Instead of being in a relationship with God, there's a distinct difference. I'm not saying that once you're saved, you can act any way you want. No, there's a conduct and a character that we're called to live by. But our right relationship with God is never contingent upon our actions. It's contingent upon the faith of our heart. The actions will follow our faith. And even then we're sinners that are saved by grace. The Bible says a righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up again. And so the issue here is that we can't lose sight of God. And listen, this is the sin that's in David's heart. He's lost sight of God. And so we read that he moved David against them. Now the question becomes, who is the he that verse one is talking about? When it says that he moved David against them to, to say, go number Israel and Judah. Now, it's capitalized in my Bible in the New King James translation, which is a subtle way of communicating that this is God who is saying this to communicate that. But if you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, which is a corollary passage to this, it tells the same story in 1 Chronicles about this. And in 1 Chronicles, when you read it, it says that Satan moved in David's heart to go and number the people. And so the question now becomes, well, who is it? Is it God or is it Satan? Which one is is it that's moving in David's heart? And the answer to that is that it's both of them. It's both God and Satan that is moving in David's heart. On the one hand, God sees something welling up inside David's heart that he doesn't like and he wants to deal with it. Hey, you've become proud and self-sufficient and you've lost sight that you're nothing without me. This is what God recognizes and he wants to, 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 
take action on that. And simultaneous to that, God uses Satan whose desire in, in his intention is he wants to steal, to kill, to destroy. His constant desire is to ruin David, and so it's both. Satan wants to move against David to do this thing because he wants to lead him into sin. That's, that's who he is. That's what he does. But God sees this and wants to move against David as well because, hey, listen, this is what God wants to do. He wants to, on the one hand, see this thing that's welling up in David's heart and, and then, you know, hey, I don't like that, I want to deal with that, God would say. And on the other hand, he wants David to move in David's heart, or it, to, he wants Satan to move in David's heart to number the people. It's this twofer that's going on. And simultaneous, God is like, not only that, but I want to use David to punish the people of Israel by doing this thing. So that my judgment can come not only upon David for his sin, but it also can come upon Israel and Judah for their sin. And God's motive in the whole thing is to bring them to repentance. He wants them to hit something hard. Now, this is one of several instances where the Bible records God allowing Satan access to his children. One of several. We see God allowing Satan to tempt Eve in the garden in Genesis 3. We see God allowing Satan to come against Job in Job chapters 1 and 2. We see God allowing Satan to accuse Joshua, the high priest, in Zechariah 3. We see God allowing Satan to sift Peter like wheat in Luke chapter 22. And it's significant to know both that instance with Peter in Luke 22 and with Job in Job chapters 1 and 2, Satan had to get permission. The Bible goes to to the length to make sure that we understand. Satan had to go to God to get permission to mess with his people. And all of this kind of has its home or sort of the idea of this is conveyed in in Romans 8.28. One of the most often scriptures that we will quote as Christians, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Now, a lot of times we will misquote that as Christians and we'll sort of butcher the theology of it. We'll say, oh, all things are good. No, that's not what it says. It says that all things work together for good. Not all things are good. Some really hideous things happen. Sin can be very damaging and destructive And it's not always good, but God promises that he will work everything, both the sinful things and the holy things and everything in between. He will work it together for our good. And here's the idea of that. The idea is that you and I live in a fallen, sinful world. And this fallen, sinful world that we live in is subject to man's free will. And so what happens is rather than be hindered by our fallen, broken, sinful state and our sinful choices that we make, and rather than be hindered by Satan's intense and continued desire to destroy us, God's not hindered by either of those things. Rather, he uses everything for his purposes to accomplish his will. Matthew Henry said this, he said, God is not the author of sin and he tempts no man. Satan provoked David to number Israel and he suggested it for a sin just as he, speaking of Satan, put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ. God, however, as righteous judge permitted it, permitted it with the design that from this sin of David to in turn use it to punish Israel for their sins. 
Now, before you go sorry, go feeling sorry for David or for Israel for God allowing Satan to come in and tempt them and, and train wreck them in this way so that he can judge them, you ought to understand they are not innocent victims here. Now, again, he, God's allowing Satan to further what's already in David's heart. And, and so what happens, again, hey, I'm going to let Satan do that to further that which is in his heart, and I'm going to do it so that, Sa- so that David hits something hard so that I can lead him to repentance. And I'm going to allow through that action that David's going to take that consequence and judgment is going to fall on Israel and Judah. 70,000 people will die by pestilence that God, that God brings. And I'm going to allow that. Why? Because the people need to repent and they need to hit something hard. So God, he is allowing this, but he wants to bring something good from it. Now, with that in mind, consider the words of John Calvin. He said this, he said, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. Take a walk with that, with where we're at in America right now. When God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. And, you know, this is, uh, so I'll get political for a minute, all right? So, um, I haven't talked to anybody who likes any of the presidential candidates. Everybody I've talked to, well, that's not true. Okay, I've talk, it's, there's, there's some extremes, but, um, you know, uh, my mom and dad have one extreme. They need to repent and come to Jesus. And we'll, <laughs> no. Look, God is neither Democrat or, or Republican, okay? Um, and... Um, I'm of the mindset that I'm not exactly thrilled with, with, with any of the candidates. But our, our issue in America right now is that America needs to repent and come to Jesus. Billy Graham said that if God doesn't judge America, that he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. And I agree with him. We've, we've, we've killed 54 million babies in the name of choice. I told you last week I'm a one-issue voter. That's my issue. Because I think for that issue, just by itself, that God has to judge America. And we have blood on our hands. Whether we're supportive of it or whether we're against it, we as a nation deserve judgment. And I think we as a nation are going to see the judgment of God short of a revival, and I'm praying for revival. I have never seen our nation so polarized as it is right now. So, I mean, up is down and down is up. It is absolutely crazy. It's insane. And we as a nation, we have blood on our hands and we have to pray and humble ourselves and seek the face of God and we need to beg God to bring mercy. Now, that doesn't mean that we remove ourselves from the world. And, and you know, I've heard people say, well, I don't like either candidate, so I'm not gonna vote. I think that's a mistake. I, you know, I was, I was trained you know, as, as a paramedic, and one of the things I learned as a paramedic is this issue of triage. And, and you know, triage is you do the most good for the most number of people. And sometimes, you know, there's no good choice. Sometimes it's just, this is, this is just, it's just bad all the way around. It's 20 years ago or so, I was dispatched to the Lake Elsinore Courthouse, and a guy went in and he shot a mom and he shot her kid. And we got on scene, we had the resources to work up one. 
They're both in cardiac arrest. I had to pronounce one dead on the scene and I had to work up one. Otherwise, if I tried to work them both up, they were both guaranteed to be dead. Now they both ended up dying. There were no good options, but I had to choose and I had to sort through and that's what triage means. It means it's a French word. It means to sort. And sometimes we have to triage and go, you know what? They're both lousy options, but I got to do the most good for the most number of people. And so I make my decision on, on choice, on the right to life. That's my issue. Right or wrong, you make your issue however you stand or follow the Lord, but that's the way I make my decision. And I say, I'm gonna choose life. I'm gonna stand before the Lord saying I chose that. But here's the thing. Apart from repentance and revival, we don't deserve righteous leadership. We don't. We just, we as Christians, we need to focus on God. We are lost without you. And this is where David's at here. David is in a place to where he's lost sight of God. And he doesn't, you know, in this season of life, he's not remembering, hey, you know, if God doesn't show up, I'm lost. God doesn't show up, I'm lost. So, The king said to Joab, verse three, or I'm sorry, and Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God, I'm sorry, so the king said to Joab, verse two, the commander of the army who was with him, now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than they are and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it, but why does my Lord the king desire this thing? Joab picks up right away, this is a sinful request that he's made. He's, he's, and, he, and he puts his finger right on the, on the, the prideful issue of it. He's like, Hey, you want to see how, how many fighting men you are and how great you are? Man, I pray God shows you that. Man, I pray you get to see all of that. But why are you asking me to do this sinful thing? Let God show you that. Why do you have to go and focus on how, how mighty you are? Don't do this wicked thing. And so he, he exercises courage here to, 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 to come against him to, to say that. He, he says, may the Lord add to your people a hundred times more than they are. Nevertheless, verse four, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army, which tells us that they also, these captains stepped up to say, hey, this is sinful, David. We shouldn't be doing this. And we applaud their obedience to do that, but the king's word prevailed against them. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel and they crossed over the Jordan and they camped in Aurora, on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad and toward Jazer, this is the most distant land to the east of Jerusalem, by the way. And so they start off in the distant east to start this counting process. Verse six, then they came to Gilead and to the land of uh, Tatim uh, 
Hodshi, uh, they came to, to, to Dan Jan and around to Sidon, this is north of Jerusalem, uh, and they came to the stronghold of Tyre, this is to the east of Jerusalem, and, and to all the cities of the, the Hivites and the Canaanites, and then they went out to south Judah as far as Beersheba, and so they, they you know, east, west, north, south, they just go cover everything, and it says, so when they came, had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. You want to underline that? We'll come back to that. And then Joab came, gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Let me just stop right here and do a little bit of housekeeping. If you go to First Chronicles, you say, oh, I'm a student of the word, I want to check the corollary passage here, I want to see how it matches up to 2 Samuel 24, um, what you're going to find there is that the numbers don't match up. And the number that's given in First Chronicles is 1.1 men of, 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 uh, of Israel. And so you're like, oh, wait a minute. This text that we're reading now says there's 800,000 men. That one says there's 1.1 uh, million men. Where's, what's the discrepancy? See, the Bible isn't without error. There's an error right there. No, if you look here in this account, it says that there were 800,000 valiant men. And so the differentiation between the two is that uh, what this text tells us is that 800,000 of the 1.1 million that they found in in, uh, Israel were seasoned troops. These were veterans. These were guys that were battle-hardened. They had proven themselves valiant in battle. The other guys, they're recent conscripts. They're, They're rookies kind of thing. That's the idea here. And, verse 10, David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Second point, if you're taking notes, David was convicted of his sin. First point, David lost sight of the Lord, but now here David is convicted of his sin. Now, one of the things I want to point out, I had you underline the fact that it was nine months and 20 days for him to take this count. There's no evidence to suggest here as we read this that David was sensible of his sin during this entire nine months and 20 days. That instead, rather, what was going on is that he just remained hardened in what, what he wanted to do. You know, otherwise we would have seen David become convicted and countermand his order and and take it back. Nine months, 20 days, he doesn't take it back. And, and, And so then all of a sudden, what is it that wakes him up and causes him to wake up? It's after the sin is fulfilled. It's after he receives the number, then he's convicted. And listen, this is typically how sin works. What happens in your life and in my life is that, you know, we have, we have an experience where I have a temptation and, I, and I'm mulling on that temptation and then I yield to that temptation and, 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 and it seems so sweet at the time and then what happens is that, you know, the sin is committed and, and the, the lust of the flesh is fulfilled and then on the heels of it, what happens? Conviction and or condemnation. 
Now, condemnation doesn't come from God. Condemnation comes from the enemy. And so if you're in a place to where you sin and you're feeling condemned, you need to understand that's the enemy. That's Satan that wants you to feel condemned. Now, that's not that we wink at our sin. No, conviction will come from God. But that's the way that sin always works is that we have this sin, this lust, that we commit it, and then, then comes this conviction to where we're like, oh my gosh. Now, what happens is, and the Bible talks about this, by the way, this principle that I'm making. It gives us a couple of examples in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 23, verses 31 and 32, we have an example about alcohol and the abuse of it and sinning with alcohol. He says, do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Hey, seems pleasurable, let's do it. And then comes the regret. Then comes the DUI. Then comes the, oh, I did something when I was drunk and blacked out that I never would have done, but now it's ruined my life. The regret comes afterwards. Proverbs 5, 3 and 4 talks about the, the sin of adultery. It says, for the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. Wow, she's hot. Yeah, so is hell. But in... But in the end, she's bitter as gall and sharp as a double-edged sword. See, the, the sin is tempting and the regret is there. It's been said that sin is pleasurable for a season, but the season is always too short. And maybe, I don't know, maybe this is from the Lord, but maybe that's you today. Maybe here today, you're going, man, that, you, you have been just looking at my life this week, Pastor. Maybe, you know, you gave in to sin this week. And maybe you come here today and you're convicted by God. Listen, if that's you, it's a good thing that you're convicted. A lot of times, you know, I'll talk to Christians and, and they, they, they fall into sin. And like I said, there's, there, there's a difference. There's conviction and there's condemnation. And, and what happens is they experience conviction in their lives. But, but what happens then from that conviction is, is that they'll run from God rather than running to God. And, and Satan heaps on. He, he would love for people to be in that place and, and experiencing you know, that conviction of the Lord and the enemy will twist it and he'll bring condemnation and he'll just dump it out upon you. Condi condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. And it ends up making a person want to give up, which is what Satan wants you to do is to give up. And what I tell people is, listen, it's good that if you've sinned, you have conviction because what that tells me is that you have a spiritual pulse. Because here's what, what Jesus promised. Jesus promised in John 16 that he was gonna pour his Holy Spirit out upon us and that you as a believer would receive the Holy Spirit as a down payment of your inheritance. And one of the works that Jesus said of the Holy Spirit would be to convict the world of sin. And so if you have conviction in your heart, I would say that is God working. I've had people come to me, they go, oh, pastor, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. I think, you know, I, I've, 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 I've done that thing that the Bible speaks about that I can't be forgiven of. I said, the fact that you care about it in, in the first place tells me you haven't com committed it because if you've committed that sin, you, you could care less. But you, you are, are burdened, you're convicted, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Maybe today you're convicted of sin. 
And if that's you, listen, I want you to understand the proper response is to turn to God. I won't have you turn there for time's sake, but in Matthew chapter five, Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, he starts it out, he just right out the gate, and he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. The idea is that you mourn over your sinful state, that you understand I'm a sinner by nature and by choice and that my sin has separated me from God. And so you mourn over that. And so this issue here for us is, hey, maybe you're convicted of sin and, and God would say, good, respond to it, repent. And this is what David does. David is convicted of his sin. What does he do with it? This is everything. What do you do when you're convicted of sin? Are you going to respond to it or are you going to harden your heart to it? Are you going to give up and just give in and just go, whatever, I've done it, I've blown it. It's too late for me. I'm damaged goods. I'm done. Now, as long as you've got breath in your lungs and you've got a pulse, it is not too late for you to repent of your sin. And I'm going to give you an opportunity today to do just that. And so notice, what does David say here? He says, I have sinned greatly. I've sinned greatly. See, the issue here when David says this, if you think about What's going on with, you know, his previous sin? When was another time that we saw David have a catastrophic failure? It was with Bathsheba. And in the account there, God tells Nathan the prophet, go call David on his sin. David has been living in misery for, for over a year because he's got the conviction of the Lord. And so Nathan shows up. He's like, dude, you're the man you did it. And David responds and he says, I've sinned against God. He responds in the right way. But now, notice, he says, I have sinned greatly. I've sinned greatly. This this is an amazing thing here when he says, I have sinned greatly. Now, here's what I want you to understand because there is a distinction. But I want you to understand there's not a distinction in terms of levels of sin. All sin separates us from God. All sin brings death. All sin brings destruction and heartache and sorrow. And it kills your dreams and it kills your relationships and it kills, you know, your life and it just kills your dreams and hopes and, you know, sin kills. That's what it does. But when David says, I have sinned greatly, The emphasis here, and the reason he's emphasizing it, is because he recognizes that this was a willful act of rebellion against God. This was not a sin of impulse. This was a sin of conscious choice. And he had nine months and 20 days to to be operating within this sin, just continuing in this. And what he recognizes is this, this is naked rebellion against God. See, even in our law system today, we have a differentiation between the way we handle crimes. There are crimes of passion, and then there are crimes of premeditation. And we take that into consideration as we're dealing with it. Both are punished, but we view one as as more severe than another. The, the, the crimes of premeditation are deemed more severe. And this is the idea. Now, now, the natural law doesn't do justice or even come close to explaining why David would say, this is a great sin against God. Here's what you need to understand. 
is that it's a, it's a great sin against God because it's premeditated and it arises out of a heart of pride. And listen, pride is that thing that God hates. He says in Proverbs 6, he gives you a list of the stuff that he hates. Pride is at the very top of the list. William Barclay said it this way. He said, pride is the ground from which all other sins grow. And what you need to understand here is that the most damning thing about this kind of pride, this self-reliant pride that David had, was that this cultivates the same heart as Satan. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, gives us an account of the fall of Satan. And it says this, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, listen to these I will statements of Satan. I'm this, and I'm great, and I'm going to be self-reliant, self-sufficient. He says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And when we have that type of of proud self-reliant sin, we are in this same camp as this and we have basically said to God, I don't need you because I'm sufficient. And it's a very, very Very dangerous place to be. And so what we read here with David in verse 10 saying, I have sinned greatly. But notice not only what he does is is that he says at the end there, I have done very foolishly. Now that phrase, I've done very foolishly, in, in the Hebrew, here's what it means. And, I, and I, can, I can best describe it by an illustration. You ever watch a karate movie? And one in particular where the guy goes, and he grabs the guy's heart and he pulls it out and it's beaten there in front of him, right? Which is impossible, right? But he pulls the guy's heart and the guy sees his, heart, his own heart beating and he falls down dead. That's what David is saying here. He said, God has reached into the depths of my being and he's ripped out my heart and he has put this in front of me. This isn't David kind of putting the dots together and doing this. No, this is God supernaturally ripping his heart out, putting it right in front of him and making him realize at this point, I've done very foolishly. We're going to stop at this point. We'll pick up the rest next week. Here's what I want to close with. James 4, verse 6, the second part of it says this. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And here today, we need to be reminded that God is all-sufficient and that we are not. And that you and I are desperately dependent upon God for every waking breath Hey, the Bible says the molecules of your body are held together by God. If he let go of you for one second, you just would blow apart. This world, this universe, everything we know would blow apart if it wasn't for God holding it together. He gives you life, he gives you breath, he gives you the hope of eternal life. And I wonder if you've lost sight of that today.